Welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. Uh, we're going to be in Philemon this week. I'll put up our title slide here. Our, our overall series in Philemon, or Philippians, <laughs> one of those PHI books, uh, Philippians, we've called this whole series, and this is going to carry us through to like, uh, for like maybe five more weeks till we get to our Christmas series. Uh, we called the series Imitating Jesus. This morning's message I titled Fixing Funhouse Mirrors. So let me just unpack that a little bit. I, I used to have some funhouse mirrors. Um, here at the church that I used for illustrations back when we did a series called Imago Dei, uh, being made in the image of God. And I, I can't find them. I looked for them this week and I asked the, uh, the team if anybody had seen them. We haven't seen them. If you've seen them, bring me back my mirrors. Um, <laughs> but, but I guess they're long gone. But here's the thing. About, so a funhouse mirror is one of those mirrors that when you stand in front of it, it reflects the image of whatever's in front, but it's very distorted. Some things are minimized, some things are maximized. And it, I mean, it can be anywhere between kind of comical to actually grotesque, right? And here's the way, here's what I learned when I bought those mirrors. They, they came in just a flat box and I pulled them out and they, they didn't look like funhouse mirrors at all. They just looked like a normal mirror. And then I read the instructions. What I found out is that you had to put a bend in them. And there was a way to put a bend in those mirrors. They were flexible so that, so that it created the distortion. And the more, the, the more severe the bend, the more severe the distortion. But if you flattened them back out, they were just a mirror, right? So just hold on to that. We're going to re- circle back to that in a minute. But, but that's the, this, this morning's message, fixing funhouse mirrors. So we're working our way through Paul's letter to the Christians, the followers of Jesus that were living in Philippi. And today we get into chapter two and what's actually, this is actually like the core of the whole letter, the central core that everything else kind of radiates from. And here's why I mean by that. That's unique because in most of Paul's letters, when Paul writes letters to the churches, he starts with, he, he starts with a logical progression. Almost always, he starts with theology and then moves to application. He starts off and says, this is what's happened in your life as a result of your salvation. This is what Jesus has put in motion. And here's how you live that out. And so it's some sort of application like that. You can read almost any of his epistles, his letters, and that's the progression. And, and so there's this logical progression from point A to point Z, right? This letter's a little bit different. The structure of this one is that, that there's, um, there's a central core that everything radiates out of. And so Bible Project did a, a video on this, and I've got their, their final slide here as an illustration. I don't expect you to be able to read the text, Okay. <laughs> Don't send me notes like, hey, we can't read that. Um, I'm not expecting you to be able to read it this morning. What I would encourage, and if you're online, people in the room can't read it either. Um, What I would encourage you to do is take a few moments to just search Bible Project online and go to their, there's New Testament. It's really easy to find. You you won't have a hard time finding it. Watch the New Testament overview of Philippians. 
It's about eight minutes long. It's incredibly helpful. Well, the reason I put it up though this morning is it shows this, the way that this book is structured. You see that center circle and it's Philippians 2, 6 through 11. That is the core of this, of this letter and everything else radiates every, out of it. Okay, so, so for example, um, the essence or core of, of the book is the person and work of Jesus. Who Jesus is, how he lived, how he won rescue, how he affected change in all of creation. That's the, that's the central core. And so that's often, you'll see that up there, it says it's called the Messiah poem, if you can read that. is the little banner over it, it says the Messiah poem. is a, a poem or a hymn that probably preexisted Paul. He didn't write it. It was a way of, of communicating the theological truth about Jesus' entire life to people. And so that's the central core. And then on the side is every time he comes to a new idea, it's all pointing back to that. And so, for example, last week when Brent talked about how are we supposed to, as Christians, deal with the problem of pain in our lives and in our world? And, and, and what does that look like? Well, that points back to Jesus. How did Jesus navigate pain and suffering? What did he do? What was his example? So, so everything that he comes to, every topic is going to come back to this. Right? So I would encourage you to watch that, um, that uh, Bible Project video. You'll find it very helpful. Um, make that part of your devotional life this week. So as we get back, as we get into the text today, we're going to circle back to Paul's stated thesis in chapter one. We looked at this the first week. Paul says, this is the opening to his letter. He says, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. I make my requests for you with joy. He loves the, what, what he has, has been able to be a part of what's happening in this church. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the first time that you heard of it until now. That first week, we looked at the first time they heard the gospel, what was going on. Here's what he says. Here's his thesis. I bolded it. I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. That's his thesis. God began a good work in you. God is, it, there was a, a starting point. It's advancing, it's progressing throughout your life. And God is going to bring it to a point of completion. It, it won't happen this side of eternity. It happens at the second coming, but God is going to finish the good work he began in you. So here's what Paul's very clear about, that in their, in their life with God and everything that entails, from the fact that they even became followers of Jesus, the fact that they were born again, that all the, all the theological language, sanctified, the fact that they were ju their justification, their, their redemption, all of the things that make up their Christian life, he says, God's doing the heavy lifting. I'm confident that God began a good work in you. God's advancing that work. God's going to see it through to completion. So that's why Paul is confident, but it's not why he's writing the letter. He's confident because of God's part. He's writing the letter because of their part, that they have a part to play in what God's doing. So it's this thing where God's doing the heavy lifting, but the people aren't passive. The good work that God's begun that he's, he's bringing to completion, the people aren't just passively waiting for God to do it. They have a part to play. That's what the letter's about. 
That's why he keeps pointing to Jesus and saying, here's who Jesus is. Here's how it affects your moment-to-moment life. And so the question is, how does God transform lives? How does he continue the good work that he began, that he's, that he's advancing, that he's finishing? And is it through moments like this morning when we just spontaneously responded to what the Holy Spirit was awakening in us? Or does it happen through our moment-to-moment life out there in our choices? And the answer is yes. It's, it's both. It's not an either-or. It's a both-and. And so Paul was there when there was moments when the Holy Spirit fell and there was great conviction and hearts were rendered and people responded to Jesus in, in significant ways. Whole households responded to God. And now as they continue to walk that out, he says, well, it's gonna happen in your day-to-day life and the choices you make. Let's begin with chapter two. So, If, I love this this if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, you you have to kind of hear the tone of what he's saying. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Remember he said he has joy for them. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay, we're gonna slow down and unpack that for just a minute because he uses some conditional statements. He says, if any of these things exist in your life together as followers of Jesus, if then. And it's not so much the conditional statements, they're not so much saying if, they're saying because. Okay, that's what's implied. It's an implied conditional where he's saying, because all these things are true. So because you have found some hope in Christ, has anyone here found some hope in Christ? Right? Yes, absolutely. Does it stay? Do you experience it at the same level 100% of the time? Probably not if you live in this world and you're honest. It, It wanes, but you can think back to those, you can think to those moments and those are what sustain the hope. You, you know, you've experienced hope. Because you have experienced the love of Jesus. Anybody experienced the love of Jesus? That's why we're giving up a Sunday morning to be here, right? Because something has happened that we want to cultivate and lean into and experience more of. We've experienced love. When, when we had the testimonies up here this morning, Jake says, God loved me so much, he set me free from cigarettes. He didn't have to do that, Right? if you've experienced the love of Jesus, because you have a shared life in the spirit, this is a word we've looked at over several weeks now, koinonia. It's a participation together. You have a shared life in the Holy Spirit. It's not just what God's doing in you individually, but you're experiencing what he's doing in and through you together in your generosity towards your community. That's a participation in the spirit because you have felt some degree of compassion and sympathy for one another. Is it constant? Do you constantly feel compassion and sympathy towards one another? No. That's why he leaves some room for this ambiguity. If you've experienced any of it at all, then here's what to do. And here's the implication. Because if you haven't experienced any of that at all, then maybe you haven't experienced yet God beginning a good work in you, right? But if he has began a good work in you, 
If you can say yes to any of those things, then here's what's next. And he says something, he, he makes it really simple. He offers some next steps. That, um, and he's, it, recognize this, this letter is written to them as a church, like a, a gathering of people, a spiritual family on mission together. So what he's writing to them is supposed to be lived out in their relationships. This actually isn't about individual discipleship. In fact, Paul didn't really have any sort of vision for following Jesus by yourself because you didn't like other Christians. He doesn't. In fact, this little secret, it's in the very conflict, not only with people out there, but with people in here, that we get formed to be more like Jesus, that he continues the good work, right? And so everything he's about to say in these next few paragraphs, he's saying to them together about their life together. So he, he says this really simple. He's like, he's like oh, I've got a really simple little ask. I just want you to be of the same mind, same love, in full agreement and of one mind. Really easy, right? <laughs> what does that mean? I've, I asked that this week. And he, I underlined the word mind because he's going to use it three times in just these few brief verses. He's going to talk about the way that we think, our worldview, our mindset. He said, I want you to have the same mind. What's he talking about? Full agreement, same mind about what? Now, it's really easy to have the same mind and to be in full agreement about anything until a second person walks in the room. (laughs) And you can have agreement with that other person until you actually talk about real things. And all of a sudden you find out, I don't think we're on the same page, right? I mean, think about it. Full agreement about politics, politicians, immunizations, public policy, social policy, foreign policy, economic policy, full agreement about banning books, about zoning codes, immigration, media bias, sports franchises, (laughs) full agreement about your sports team giving up 21 points in the last six minutes. Last night, (laughs) I'm listening to the BSU game on my AirPods, laying in bed. Andrea's already asleep. I can't shout because I had literally promised her, I like, I think the game's, it's it's like, we won, it's going to be good. I'm not going to wake you up. And then the last six minutes happened. I was like, wow. We're probably, most of us are probably in full agreement about what happened. But here's the point. When Paul says, be of the same mind, have, uh, what does he say? Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, what is he talking about? If that has anything that we can actually do, we have to know what he's talking about. Well, he gets more specific. Verse three, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, 
but also to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Okay, this is where it gets really helpful. The first paragraph, there's two paragraphs there. That first one, it gets really specific about the full agreement. He's not expecting us to, or even suggesting that followers of Jesus should think the exact same way about every single issue. He's not suggesting that. What he is asking for and is suggesting is that there should be full agreement on our posture towards other people, our posture towards one another in the family of Christ and our posture towards those that are not yet part of the family that we want to see come to know Jesus. Our posture, that's what he says, right? He's asking for our posture towards others, especially when we disagree on an issue. Because this isn't hard to do. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look to your, not to your own interests, but also the interests of others. That's easy to do when you completely agree with somebody. Like when there's no conflict, no tension. It's actually when there's tension between two people or two groups or two sides that suddenly you have to make a choice. That's when you have to choose it. Our, our founding pastor, Try, he used to say, anybody can, can say you're their leader until you say something they don't like. And then you find out if, if, if they're following, right? The second paragraph, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, this gets specific about the same mind or the one mind he's talking about. The mind he's talking about isn't your, your opinion on all the issues that are current in their day or our day. It's the mind of Jesus, the mindset of Jesus. And he goes on to elaborate. So this is when he brings in the Christ poem or the Christ hymn that was probably pre-written, probably pre-existed Paul. It's very theologically dense. It's very theologically accurate. It actually goes from Jesus pre-incarnation through the incarnation, through his death, through his resurrection, through his exaltation. It is the whole theological story of Jesus. Ironically, <laughs> ironically, theologians throughout the ages have argued about the meaning of the passage, <laughs> which is just like missing the point, right? That's an adventure in missing the point because it's actually about unity, right? So the incarnation, Jesus was fully God. Let's read it. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Some translations say grasp, something to take hold of and, and not let anybody pry it out of your hand. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. That's part one of the poem talks about the incarnation. Jesus was fully God, yet he chose to set aside that position and privilege in order to enter his creation as a human being. It's really hard to get our minds around that, around the creator descending into his creation, the humility that involves. The, the, one of the closest analogies that I've come across as far as trying to think about how do we sort of get our, our minds around that you think about when uh, the billionaire owner of, a, of some sort of company or organization enters into the organization, like, like, you know, secret, like secret boss, undercover boss type thing, enters into the organization at the lowest level 
And does, does the most menial job for the most menial pay for the least recognition in order to experience what the rest of the organization experiences? We, you know, you've seen that show? Okay, they, they wrap it up really nicely in 30 minutes. Jesus entered into his world and the pathway back to his eternal state was through death and resurrection for the whole organization. This is what Paul's saying. This is, this is the mindset of Christ, that he didn't, he didn't hold on to his privilege. I, I love this translation. I actually chose the NLT because it used the word privilege. That's a buzzword in our, in our community, isn't it? For good or for bad. Jesus didn't hold on to his privilege. He didn't grasp it. He didn't say, this is my right. He instead held everything in an open hand and said, I'm going to live based on what's best for other people even the people who are opposed to him, which is why he could say on the cross, Father, forgive them as they're crucifying him. Father, forgive them. Okay, this is a radical mindset. And Paul's saying, I want you to choose that mindset. He was not born as a human being with great power, position, or privilege. He was born as one with no human power, no position or privilege. I just met a little two-year-old boy over here. Is it Marvin, I think? Marvin, is that right? Yeah. Jesus didn't enter into the world as a 30-year-old man at the peak of his, you know, strength, power, or anything. He entered as a baby dependent on a teenage mom to take care of his every need. That's humility. This is our God. This is our Savior. And it's our pattern that we're supposed to model our lives after. Not only that, in obedience to the Father's plan to reconcile God and man, Jesus offered himself up to die a criminal's death, the most brutal, brutal form of execution man had imagined. That's the mind of Christ. That's the mindset that Jesus lived from. That's what Paul is saying to followers of Jesus. Imitate that, choose that. It's the target, it's the filter that you can run every response through. So Paul goes on to tell the rest of the story because it doesn't end with the Jesus' death. The rest of the story goes to verse nine. It says, therefore God elevated him, Jesus, to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth saying, celestial beings, human beings, dead humans. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God, the father. This is God's word. The hymn tells the rest of the story. God didn't leave Jesus in the grave. Resurrected Jesus has now been restored to his eternal state and will one day be worshiped by all. Some will worship him joyfully, willingly, because that's the way that we've lived our earthly lives, and this is the culmination of that. Some will worship in stunned surrender to the one that they rejected throughout their earthly life. But one day there won't be a choice. So here's the application. We, 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 we go through these scripture, not just to understand what did happen or what was written, but to understand what should happen. And what's God writing on us? What's he inscribing? What's the Holy Spirit inscribing on our hearts?
So we're gonna do a little bit of application as we close today. The application is this. What is the good work that God has begun? What is he continuing? And what does he promise to complete? Here's the thing. The good work that he's beginning, there's a number of things. So as we talked about, salvation, sanctification, justification, there's all the theological terminology for the Christian life. One thing that God is doing that's made clear in this book is that God is forming you and me into the image of Christ. And every one of us is an image bearer. That's the nature of just being born. In fact, people who don't know Jesus are image bearers. It's just, there's more bends. We're fallen image bearers who distort the image of God to ourselves and to one another. And what God is doing throughout our Christian life is he's taking out the creases, the bends, so that we can reflect him more accurately with less distortions, that we, that the, that we don't diminish his holiness anymore, that we don't exaggerate things that are, that are not exaggerated, that we're reflecting God as he is. So think of that funhouse mirror. That's what God's doing. So what's our part? Well, Paul says so there's three things, three steps, really simple, whole lifetime, okay? This is just the, this is the basics the fundamental basics of Christian discipleship that we come back to all the time. Begins with a mindset or a worldview. Paul said three times, he said, have this mind, have this mind, be of the same mind, the mind of Jesus. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. This is a way of thinking about ourselves and about others that's consistent with Jesus. It's a way that's consistent with the one who did not grasp or cling for power and privilege, but instead lived sacrificially to prefer others. He lived for the sake of other people. Paul already fleshed that out in several practical ways that can happen in relationship. So when he said this part, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. That's us reflecting the image of Jesus, right? That's a radical reversal of the unredeemed human mindset. Take the arena, just take the arena of our political system, okay? We're moving towards a, a local election this fall. Uh, next year, we're gonna have a national election. I was thinking about this week and I asked myself the question, can I imagine an election where this was the internal motivation, this, this verse, this was the internal motivation and the operational worldview of every candidate? If this is, this is what everybody was living out of, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves, that each of you look not to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. I can't imagine. I'm, I, I, hope, I hope there's Christian politicians that that's their operational value. And that's the way they're trying to, to, to live within the system. But that is not the system. That is a completely different operating system. But it's a gift to you as your new birth in Jesus. This is the mind of Christ. This, this verse here where it says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. That's saying two things. On the one hand, it's saying, choose this pattern. Choose what Jesus did as the pattern for your life. But it's also saying, let this mind be in you that is yours because you're in Christ. Because you're a new creation, if you have the spirit of the living God inside of you, this is now your operating system. 
you may have habits about the old operating system that make you still act very self-interested and very self-centered, but that's not who you are at your core anymore. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. This mindset you have in Christ. So he's saying, choose that. It's a way of thinking about ourselves and others that's consistent with Jesus. So um, I wanna say that I think this is so radical and so contrary to the patterns of our human nature that we have to deliberately choose it. And I think that's why he says it three times. You won't just drift there. Again, Paul's confident that God's gonna finish the work, but he's writing the letter because they have a part to play. And he says, you have to grab onto this mindset and internalize it again and again and again. So what comes next after that? Well, once you have the mindset, progress, it progresses through actions. Having taken hold of that mindset, every conflict, and I don't think I'm overstating this, every conflict, every argument, every circumstance, every situation, every tension, every controversy, every interaction, and every conversation becomes an opportunity to choose an action that is true to Jesus. Again, who did not cling to his privilege or grasp for power, but humbly preferred what was best for others through obedience to God. The question is always, what would my savior do? And more importantly, what would he not do? And it's not just all the big things. It's the everyday little things of life. Am I gonna wash the dish I just put in the sink or should that be somebody else's job? This is really practical. I shouldn't do it. I worked all day. That's not preferring others. Jesus would wash the dish. He really would. It's just practical, right? Have this mind be in yours. So choose an action that's consistent in who Jesus was. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say and what would he not say? What would he type and what would he not type? Right? Would Jesus resort to name calling? We choose the response or action that's most consistent to Jesus' incarnation and then we pray that he would be made visible through our lives. We pray that his kingdom would come, his will would be done here on earth in this circumstance, in this conflict, in this situation, in this moment, as it is in heaven. We pray that prayer. Jesus gave us that prayer to pray really as a daily prayer. And we choose how to live that out when we choose actions that are consistent with who Jesus is. And lastly, it gets completed by repetition. So it begins with a mindset, progresses through actions, completed through repetition. So step three is repeat. Because this is how God forms Christ in us. How he completes the good work. How does he iron out the, the bends in the way that we reflect him? How does he bend, iron out the bends in our funhouse mirror? By us repeatedly cooperating with him in this way. Here's what God doesn't do. When you become a Christian, God didn't take you and slam you into a Jesus mold and push you out the other side as a carbon copy of Jesus. That's why you still got problems. did put the mind of Christ in you. You're born again. You're not a slave to your old habits and patterns. And he's giving you the choice. Choose to be like Jesus every day in every way. He doesn't conform us into the image of Christ in one fell swoop. He patiently waits for our participation 
And again, he's doing the heavy lifting, but he lets us choose again and again and again. And if we choose this, progress, this process again and again and again, what increasingly comes out of our lives when we get squeezed by circumstances, by conflict, by triggers, what increasingly comes out of us in that moment looks and sounds like Jesus, right? The, the more that we're formed into his image, the more that the bends are smoothed out, the more that what comes out of our life naturally, reflexively looks like Jesus. That's the goal. Sometimes it's very mechanical. We have to stop and think, what would Jesus do? And maturity looks like when what Jesus would do is what begins to come out of us automatically. That's formation. That's Christian formation. So this is the distortion. Um, Paul summarized this idea in, the, in next week. So this is the beginning of next week's passage, but I just wanted to share it with you this week, kind of telegraph it, because it's such a beautiful closing. This is like the bookends of what he just said. Listen to this, and you'll hear the tension. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see that? There's the tension again. God's the one doing it. He's giving you the capacity to even desire to live in a way that, that reflects Jesus. He's giving you the empowerment, the grace to actually live in a way that's reflective of Jesus. And you have a choice. And Paul says it really strongly. He doesn't say, this is an option. You're already saved. And this is just kind of a, a, a part of the you know, nice package. You can get the tinted windows or not. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If we're not doing this, the question is, did the good work ever begin in us? Because if a good work began in us, this is what we begin to desire. So we're just going to close with a little bit of application. I'll tell you a story. Hey there, Vineyard. Um, if you weren't here on Sunday, our uh, soundboard went out at the very end of the morning. And so we lost sound in the room and then uh, momentarily we lost it online as well. And so I've had several people reach out to say, hey, can you finish the story that you were telling when that happened? So um, I, this video is to do two things. One, I wanna finish the story, um, but more importantly, I wanna talk about that moment when the power in our soundboard went out and how the church responded. And I think it was kind of a, a almost a prophetic moment for us. So um, anyway, first the story. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was driving down Chinden, coming in to work uh, midweek, coming in uh, for our time of worship and prayer that we have each morning. And uh, traffic was pretty thick coming in, uh, heading east and down Chinden. And um, there was a, a delivery van next to me that I could tell wanted into my lane and she had slowed down and put her signal on. And so my initial response was to slow down and let her in. And when I did that, she didn't take the opportunity to get into my lane. And so I, I gunned it and went in front of her so she could get in. I, I was trying to figure out what she was doing. Um, I don't know quite what she was doing, but clearly what I did frustrated her by what I could see happening in my rearview mirror as I watched her merge into my lane and try to communicate to me from a distance. <laughs> and so uh, anyway, it was one of those miscommunications and I, I couldn't explain to her, I'm sorry, I, I didn't know what you were doing. So I just came into work. But as I entered into our time of worship and prayer, I couldn't quite shake that moment, what had happened, and the fact that 
she was very, very frustrated, and and, uh, um, and here I was trying to worship, and, and I just couldn't quite shake what had happened. And so uh, after wrestling with that for about 20 minutes, I was reminded of a couple things. I was reminded of Jesus talking and saying, if you, if you uh, are offering your gift of worship and, uh, and you recognize that a brother or sister has uh, an offense with you, go and resolve that. And, and secondly, I recognized that for me that morning, and I just sensed this kind of nudge from the Holy Spirit, that worship for me that morning wasn't about being in that room with my brothers and sisters, singing songs and praying. It was actually about going and making right this offense. That was my act of worship for the morning. And so, uh, big picture, I, I went down to Starbucks, I bought a $10 gift card and wrote a note in it and said, hey, uh, I'm the guy who was driving the truck today and, and sorry about our miscommunication. I, I didn't mean to frustrate you and I, I hope the rest of your day goes better. And I delivered to her work, you know, it was a delivery van so I knew where she worked and I, uh, she wasn't there but I just said to the, the owner who was there, I said, you know, I, I frustrated one of your employees in traffic this morning and I just wanted to apologize and hope that her day goes better. So. The, the point of the story was that um, things happen throughout our, our day. Life brings things to us, and it's an opportunity for us to say, how would Jesus respond? What would Jesus do? What would he say? And, um, and those are the moments when not only are we reaching out to other people, but also Christ is forming his character in us. And it's through, all, it's through the obedience of all of those little things that Christ is formed in us. So that's the story. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, that I, several people have pointed out just actually the beauty of that moment when the power went out because the worship team responded. They just, they rolled with it and they said, hey, we're still gonna lead this song, but you're gonna have to sing really loud and we're just gonna do it acoustic and just voices. And it was this beautiful gathering of voices to worship Jesus and to offer ourselves to him. And uh, I, I just love that moment. And I think, you know, culturally in America, there's been a shift, and part of that shift is this move from Christendom to a post-Christian America, and we've lost our power, in a sense, our human power, and it's disorienting, and it's kind of jolting, and that was never really the source of our power anyway. Our power is the gospel, and it's the indwelling Holy Spirit, and that's you, it's us uniting in one voice as followers of Jesus, saying we want to, uh, to worship Jesus, to proclaim Jesus, to live our lives like Jesus would if he were us. And so uh, I think that was kind of a parable, if not a prophetic moment, when we responded that way. And I was, uh, you know, I had goosebumps, like Holy Spirit goosebumps, just with that moment. Holy Spirit, would you, would you help us to choose your operating system? What's the way that's so contrary to our world that you would have us to think about this thing. Corresponding action that you can take. Maybe it's gonna happen this week. What's a corresponding action? What would my savior do? What would my savior not do? What would my savior say? What would he not say? Do you have it? Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. If, if you're able to, would you stand with me? Worship team's gonna lead us in a song that does, allows us to do two things. It allows us to thank God for what he's done for us. 
and give him our response of worship and to give him our lives and say, okay, I wanna live in a way that glorifies you, that reflects you accurately and with less distortions to my world. So um, worship team, would you lead us in that? We will, and I will. (laughs) (laughs) And you guys have to sing loud because you're not gonna be able to hear anything about my acoustic guitar. So, yeah. That's okay, we got this. We got it. We have power. Life is going to bring all kinds of opportunities this week to choose this mindset, to choose the corresponding actions, and then to repeat them again the next day. And what we just did here, this is our worship. And when we do that out there, that is also our worship. 
Yes, yes. That's how we make the invisible God visible to people who aren't in here. Right. right? So let's go ahead and live that way. We, uh, we want to take a moment. We want to take our, our closing time this morning, just make some space for ministry time. Here's some, uh, some words for prayer that collectively our prayer team was sensing this morning, uh, some specific things that, that, um, that we just sensed God wanted to do in hearts and lives. And so here's our words for prayer. And these are, these are not all encompassing. You may have different needs for prayer and you are welcome to respond as well. But the words are, God is here to rescue you. Let hope rise. Some of us need to know that, right? We need to tap back into that hope that we have experienced and know that God's going to finish that work. Say, God, would you advance it today? God is bringing you back into the covering of God. He's restoring you. Somebody knows exactly what that means. And God is healing your heart. All right. If that reflects you and you'd like to, to just respond in prayer today, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to bring the worship or the prayer team up and, and say, come pray with somebody. I'm just going to invite you to, to come up front if you want, or you can sit right where you are. You can just sit right in your chair and respond right there, but just don't leave here without responding. And if you come up here, somebody from the prayer ministry is going to give you a minute and they're just come and put their hand on your shoulder and, and partner with you in that prayer. Koinonia, partnership. I'm going to partner with you in prayer. Okay? Apart from that, go out and make the invisible God visible. If you're new or newish, we have a, uh, a meet and greet over off the office lobby over here and we'd love to be able to say hi. All right. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.